In case you didn't see the last video, yes, I'm clean shaven. I look like a baby. I know, so let's just get these jokes out of the way before we start. Hey Luke, love your stuff. You look like you just crawled out of your mom. Oh, okay, okay. This next one's from John. He says, hey Luke, love the channel. Can I get a shout out from Khaleesi? Absolutely you can, Khaleesi say something. No? Fair enough. John went on and said, your videos are some of the best around, love them to death. Also, where did your jawline go? Oh, oh, okay, okay. Jessica said, Luke, Dr. Frankenfurter wants his feminine good looks back. Well, the joke's on you. I love Rocky Horror Picture Show, so I'm not even upset about that. Thank you for the compliment. Don't get strung out by the way I look. And Jackson from Ohio said, hey Luke, love your videos. I would love a shout out. Well, you just got one. You look like a bitch. Oh, oh, okay. Okay, I think that's enough. <laughs> all jokes aside, thank you to all the viewers who sent in those roasts. That was actually quite funny. Welcome to another critique. Today we're talking about Middle Earth Shadow of Mordor. I'm super excited about it. As you can probably tell, I'm feeling quite perky. Honestly though, this room needs to heat up, otherwise I'm gonna cut through the shirt. Setting all that aside, we're going to be breaking down how the game works, what works about it, all the functions going in deep as is tradition. Now, as is the nature of critiques, especially on this channel, we're gonna be going in a fair amount of detail with a lot of the mechanics of the game. So there's gonna be a lot of different topics. I understand a lot of you like to jump around, especially with these longer videos. So I'm gonna have timestamps included in the description box below so that if you want to skip ahead to certain parts that interest you more, you can feel free to do that. Now, Shadow of Mordor was received fantastically well back in 2014 when it launched. In fact, it received many Game of the Year awards from a vast array of media publications However, the sequel, which launched in 2017, known as Shadow of War, was less well received. Now, I'm all down for talking about Shadow of War and breaking down what works in that game and what doesn't, because there's definitely a lot to be said about it. However, that's not going to be in this video. However, if you would like to see a critique of that game, make sure to let me know in the comments below. But with all of that said, I'm down to get into this. But first, I want to thank the sponsor without whom this video would not be happening and that is the Ridge. Now Ridge makes really high quality accessories such as their wallet, which is what they're most known for, and then also their bags, which I actually use daily whenever I bike to class and back. I am a huge believer in their product line as you can probably tell. And so needless to say, when they reached out to be a potential sponsor for the channel, I was pretty ecstatic and I am very glad to have them on board. Now, as you guys know, I've made a promise to you that I will not endorse a product unless I actively use it in my day-to-day -day life, which with Ridge, I do. And I'm very glad that I do because actually earlier in the summer at E3 in Los Angeles, I was walking around the show floor with my old beat up leather wallet, no protection for any sort of data theft or anything. And I actually had my credit card information stolen right out of my pocket while walking through a crowd. If I had been using my Ridge wallet at the time with RFID protection, that wouldn't have happened. And like I said, I'm proud to have them as a sponsor for this channel. If you go to ridge.com forward slash Luke, you can check out their whole product lineup. Just make sure you use promo code Luke at checkout to save 10% off your entire order. Now to begin this discussion about Shadow of Mordor, I think it's important that we first just get the narrative out of the way because it's not very crucial in the discussion of this game, primarily because the developers 
approached it in a very indirect sort of way. Allow me to explain. For any video game that has a story component in it at all, there's two basic ways that you can approach implementing it into the overall structure of the game's design. And that's for one, to have the narrative lead the charge and have the gameplay support the narrative. And this would be something like we would see with the Naughty Dog title, where the story is taking precedent over everything else and the gameplay supports and reinforces that. Or the second option, which is what we find in Shadow of Mordor, is that you have gameplay structures and systems that are very rewarding, engaging, and fun that players are going to be flocking to the game to engage with. And then the narrative is purely meant to establish, reinforce, and justify that gameplay loop. She's hungry. I just saw her come out of her cage. I'm going to give her her kale and worms. And like I said, this is pretty much what we see in Shadow of Mordor. The narrative is there, and it is, of course, a Lord of the Rings established property, but it doesn't really play into this a lot. It is by no means a narrative title, and the narrative pretty much exists to be a cool coat of paint around an otherwise very fun and engaging game. And I honestly think this is a good idea because the gameplay system that they've built in Shadow of Mordor is so engaging and it's, it's just fascinating in every way, which is why we're going to discuss it in depth in just a moment, that a lot of people were approaching this game likely without a lot of knowledge of the franchise from which it was born, specifically Lord of the Rings. And so because they approached the narrative in the way that they did, it actually made it so that players are able to approach the game without vast knowledge of the lore of Lord of the Rings, just engaging with it, having a blast. And if they do happen to have a lot of knowledge of the lore of Lord of the Rings, then they're gonna have an even more engaging time with the title because they're gonna get all of the little references and all the little throwaway lines that other players would just tune out. But with all of that said, the narrative in the game falls in line with what you would expect to see in a video game from 2014. Even something as random and unpredictably predictable as Troy Baker playing the protagonist, which is actually kind of hilarious because I threw out in a stream that Troy Baker was probably going to voice act somebody in the game while we were playing it. And then we looked it up and it turned out that Troy Baker actually does voice the protagonist in both Shadow of Mordor and Shadow of War, which I, I just find hilarious. But I guess in summation, you could simply say it works enough. But this brings us to what is definitely the most intriguing and interesting part of the game, which is the gameplay. Now there's two basic components that combine to create the masterpiece that is Shadow of Mordor, and that is the combat and the nemesis system, two things that by themselves would be pretty interesting, but in congruity result in one of the best games of the previous generation. Now we'll start with the combat. The combat has evolved from a system that Warner Brothers and their subsidiary studios, namely Rocksteady, developed for the Batman Arkham series. It's something known as the Free Flow Combat System, which establishes a very simple control scheme, but ties together all of the animations in an incredibly fluid way. Effectively, the combat just consists of three basic moves and categories of actions, and that's of course attacks, parries and movements or dodges effectively. 
However, the beauty comes in how well all of these work together in that you can attack, instantly parry, dodge another opponent, and then do some more damage while you're parrying another group. And it ties together to the point where they encourage you to do so in as fluid a manner as possible with a combo counter. And I don't know about you guys, but many times whenever I'm playing an Arkham game or Shadow of Mordor, I find myself trying to build that combo counter up as high as I possibly can. You know, it's something that's very gamey, which some people refer to as a negative thing when there's damage numbers popping up and there's highlighting enemies and all sorts of things you can see through walls. I understand why those protestations might exist. However, I think it's perfectly fine because you're playing a video game at the end of the day. And if there are options to turn those gamey things off, great such as combo counters and seeing enemies through walls during stealth sequences. But by themselves, I don't consider it to be a vastly negative thing because after all, you are still playing a video game. And in the case of Shadow of Mordor, you're actually engaging with a combat system that is built on trying to get the player to the point where they can build that combo counter up as much as they possibly can. It's something that kind of upsets people when you say that there's a quote unquote right way to play a game, but in this case, I think there probably is. And the right way to play the game is to play it well by building the combo counter. And so it, it might seem incredibly obvious that the best way to play the game is to be good at the game or to engage in the gameplay system so well that it rewards you more and more and more. But that's why rewards and systems such as combo counters exist in games to try to encourage the player to do things that will make their experience more fun. If it didn't make it more fun, they wouldn't bother. Now, another common criticism that comes along with the free flow combat system is that it's been overused. It's something that sort of was initially developed by Ubisoft for the Assassin's Creed games early back in the day with like Assassin's Creed 2, for instance, with their very simple attack parry system. But I think it's very safe to say that it was refined to a whole new level in 2009 with Batman Arkham Asylum and that Warner Brothers really figured it out. And speaking of Batman Arkham anything, that system was used all the way up through Arkham Knight and might be used again in the coming games that are set to release sometime probably next year. And while I agree that the system has obviously been used a lot, the reason it's been used a lot is because players really enjoy it. However, that's not an excuse for stagnation, which definitely is something you can see nowadays, but it's important to remember that in 2014, this system was still peaking, and this was considered to be the start of a new peak after Batman Arkham Asylum and Arkham City really established the free flow combat system as a viable system and mechanism within any sort of action game. And then Shadow of Mordor comes in and throws it with swords and decapitations, very visceral, mature animations that you didn't get in the Arkham games and establishes it as an adult medium and it just works so much better than I think it gets credit for nowadays looking back. But to me, the most pertinent takeaway from Warner Brothers taking the free flow combat system from the Arkham games and moving them over to the Middle Earth games is that Warner Brothers is sharing these properties or intellectual properties, these ideas between studios and between franchises which I don't know about you, but makes me instantly wonder about a nemesis system within an Arkham game. I don't know, maybe in something like, say, a Suicide Squad game? I know, I reference this like every time I talk about a Warner Brothers title. 
of any sort, but it's because I think it would be awesome. A Suicide Squad game with a nemesis system and free flow combat. It just makes sense to me. I don't know. Let me know your thoughts in the comments. But with all of this said, let's get into some more of the minutia, the individual mechanisms and workings of this combat system, even looking back, playing it today. Now, my most recent playthrough of Shadow of Mordor was on my Xbox One X while I was playing through it on stream and getting ready for this critique. And it still runs very, very well. The game actually looks very, very good considering it was a 2014 title. And all things considered, it runs very well. However, I will say there was a fair amount of sluggishness in terms of the responsiveness of pressing, for instance, X on the controller by the time it happens in the game. A slight delay, maybe it's because I'm just spoiled playing it on PC for years and years, but on consoles, it does feel as though there is a fair amount of lag. However, you do get used to it pretty quickly. The combo counter build-up system works really, really well, and I think it fulfills one of the prescriptions of any sort of gameplay combat system, which is that if you're going to take damage and in effect punish the player, that mistake that caused damage to be inflicted needs to be justified. It needs to feel as though it was an actual mistake on the part of the player and not just a happening and a happenstance as a result of the game punishing you for no reason or trying to make something happen for no reason or the game malfunctioning in some way which causes a damaging effect on the player. It has to feel fair and justified is the point. And honestly, there aren't a lot of times in my many runs of this game that made me feel as though it was performing in an unfair manner, except for a couple times with some individual Uruks, which I'll refer to a little bit later. But all things considered, it works very, very well. There are, of course, a few kinks here and there. For instance, later in the game, you gain the ability to dominate Uruk so that they can actually fight for you and on your behalf. However, you can still deal damage to these Uruks when this happens, and the system doesn't seem to really delineate between enemy Uruk and dominated Uruk, so you just end up fighting between the two of them and there were multiple times where i actually was trying to perform a finisher on a non-dominated enemy and i ended up performing the finisher on a dominated enemy which i don't understand why that's even possible i guess if you were dominating rooks to achieve some end and then you wanted to just build up your meter and gain some xp or something you could do that where you dominate them and then just chop through them because they won't really resist you Seems like a really weird way to farm XP though. I don't, I don't know. And it's not like the XP system in this game is super important. I don't know. Maybe I'm missing something, some reason why that's allowed. Let me know. Beyond this, the control in the combat system is incredibly well refined and feels pretty remarkable, especially for a 2014 title. Again, I can't stress that enough. It's not like it was ages ago, but it was going on five years ago from the time that this video is being recorded. That's still a little ways back, and this game initially launched on previous generation consoles as well, on the 360, for instance. So it's not like it's a modern title. However, its age, I don't think, justifies some of the kinks that we run into with the rest of the game. For instance, there's a stunning lack of polish in a few key areas of the game, at least later on in the story. For instance, 
many times you're required to ride Karagors around the map to speed up traversal because there is a fast travel system. However, by the time that you actually load in an area and then start fast traveling and then load in the next area, you might have actually been able to get there faster by just dominating and riding a Karagor from point A to point B because they move so incredibly fast. However, the controlling on these creatures and mounts is so poorly done that it feels as though you are riding a mountain bike in a snowstorm while drunk and high on good old Colorado Kush. Like it is so sloppy and slippery. It's hard to describe until you actually try to navigate through a small forest while riding one of these things. And yeah, I know I just referenced Colorado Kush. No, I, I don't smoke. I just thought it would make me sound cool if I if I said Kush. <laughs> and you know what? This is actually something that you see a fair amount in any game, which is that you'll have a system which is really polished and works really, really well in one sector of the game, and then other parts really lacked attention because all of the attention was paid over here. There's only a certain amount of time that a studio can devote towards building something like this. And so you're gonna end up with areas that receive a lot of attention and other areas that are heavily neglected. It's just a fact of life in game development, but it still, I don't think, justifies how unacceptably bad controlling mounts, for instance, is. Another thing, for instance, would be the upgrade system. As I referenced earlier, XP isn't super important, but as you go through the game, you do level up, you do gain new abilities, and you unlock new things that you can do, and to a certain extent, you can change the way that you play. So, for instance, if you're super into hand-to-hand -hand combat, you can go through that skill tree pretty focused and try to build that out so that you use those abilities first. However, if you're a ranged player, you can also build out that skill tree. The problem is that a lot of these upgrades are tiered, meaning that they're locked behind a certain number of points having already been spent on upgrades. So you can't actually completely unlock one skill tree and then move on to the next one as your secondary ability. You actually have to spread these points out pretty evenly in order to, I'm sure on the part of the developers, balance the experience, but it certainly is not an action RPG by any stretch of the imagination. It's one of those weird things where I appreciate having the upgrades because it makes you feel like you're developing and making progress even though it's all pretty much on rails. But it also makes me wonder why more studios don't do what, for instance, Sekiro did, where they just let the player get better at the game. And yeah, there were some new abilities and new things and skills that you could learn along the way, but it was not trying to trick you into thinking that it was a full-on RPG with skill trees and everything. It just was an action game that presented itself as such. I don't know. I, I, I get that it makes you feel like you're making progress, but I don't think it's worth it. And maybe it's an artifact of its time, but I think nowadays, if they were to do this, it would stand out like a sore thumb. Point being, my biggest issue with the upgrade system and skill trees and everything that they have there is that it doesn't fundamentally change the way that you play. Because they establish certain tiers, everything's spread out, so your character ends up being able to do the same things that everybody else's character is going to do. And so you never find yourself 
unlocking some new ability and completely changing the way that you're approaching certain fights. Sure, there's individual skill shots, like for instance, the ability to pin enemies' feet to the ground so that they can't run at you. Yeah, that's kind of fun, but it's not something that's gonna be used a lot. Sure, maybe occasionally if there's one guy that's giving you a lot of trouble while you deal with the rest of the crowd, but at the same time, you can also just use headshots. So the only time that might really come in handy is with war chiefs and, and other higher level Uruks. But even then, they often have invincibility to certain abilities such as that. So it just doesn't seem to be very transformative in what it actually changes in the player's approach. There's also a rune system that's built in where you can add runes to your weapons. And it seems as though there's a shell of something really cool here. It allows you to add certain boosts to different types of attacks which is getting closer to the RPG element and I think it does help make up for some of the lacking elements of the uh, skill trees and everything that they have in terms of upgrades but it still feels as though it was an afterthought and there's not a whole lot of uh, explanation in terms of how to properly build out your character it's more that you will take out war chiefs or captains and you'll unlock these new runes and you can put them in it's a cool little touch, but I never felt as though I needed to use the rune system in order to make progress or be successful in my adventures. It was more something that I could do, and if I was being really proactive about it, combat would probably become easier. It's a nice touch. Again, I appreciate the effort, but I don't think it does a whole lot. I guess the one really good thing you could say about this system and how they've built it out is that it encourages the player to mess around with their character and customize it to their liking if they really want to and then if you don't want to do it you can just chill back and play the game in a much more relaxed way both are viable options and it doesn't force you to pursue a lot of loot or any sort of excessive monetization like for instance shadow of war one other element of Shadow of Mordor that works really well is the pacing. For instance, there's basically two giant areas that you'll be going through over the course of your time with the game, and they're pretty varied. The first area is very muddy, dark, and dank, and the second area is filled with foliage, trees, mini forests, and it's on a coast. It's actually pretty cool to see the difference between the two, because they almost feel like completely different games in between these areas. It's it's kind of striking. And to be completely honest, back in the day when I first played this game, I was kind of confused at this big shift and change because it did feel like a different game entirely. And I was so used to the game being much darker and grittier in the initial starting map area that by the time I went to the new area, the second zone, it felt as though I was playing something completely different. And I don't think I really liked it at the time. I much preferred the first half of the game effectively because it felt so much more accurate to what I expected out of the game, if, if that makes any sense at all. However, playing the game now, I actually think it works very well because it allows for the player to go through this whole opening section that's very dark and dank, and then you move on to the next area where you're facing much larger challenges. You tend to encounter more Uruks at a time, so the combat's way more challenging than it is in the first area, and you also end up encountering a lot more Karagors and a lot more environmental difficulties especially in terms of stealth, which I guess we should address. Stealth is a mechanic. 
that's about all you can say about it. <laughs> I don't know, all of these Warner Brother games with free flow combat systems, they always throw stealth in it. In Batman, they throw stealth in in a much more refined way than they do here. Here, it pretty much is comprised of crouching, walking around, and then instant finishing people, and also using headshots to take Uruks down, which is kind of overpowered, if you ask me. Gotta stay hydrated. It gets really hot in here. By the way, if you want a Khaleesi sticker, I'll sign it, write you a personalized note, and I'll ship it to you worldwide. Five bucks, free shipping. Check it out, lukestevens.net. But having said all of that about the stealth, I wanna still stress that I think it's important that it is included because all of these games with the free flow combat system are often criticized for feeling as though they're just one trick ponies. Like players tend to just approach it in one way and if you don't completely connect with that one style of gameplay or the free flow system in effect, then you're not going to enjoy the game and that must imply that there's something wrong with how it was designed. So the developers tend to throw in these stealth sequences for reasons and they are inevitably some of the least polished in the game. Furthermore, can we also all just agree that stealth sequences seem to be, at least to me, overwhelmingly used to pad out the content and total hours played of games because it forces you to crawl around, literally crawl around the map try to solve this vast complex issue with tons of different enemies watching different areas, moving around, doing patrols and everything. And you have to try to pick them off one by one in order to move on. It, it takes what could be done in a matter of minutes if you just got in there, used the free flow combat system, took them all out at once, and turns it into a 30 minute diatribe where you're trying to slowly pick them off. And in Shadow of Mordor, there's actual checks where it says you can't be spotted at all, otherwise you have to restart the mission. Or they have other checks where you have to take out seven archers, and if you take out other people, it can restart the clock it gets really frustrating by the end. And it feels like a mechanism from last generation, so I don't wanna bash it too much, but it is still frustrating. And I understand that this was their attempt to try to diversify and shake up the gameplay system so it didn't just turn into moving from fight to fight to fight to fight, which is, let's be honest, inevitably what a lot of games turn into. My only point is if you're going to diversify your systems with something, that something should be comparable in quality to the initial thing that you're trying to break up and diversify. But like we said earlier, inevitably you're going to have one section of the game which is much more polished and receives a lot more attention than the other section. So I, I guess it's predictable. But let's move on to the Nemesis system, which I'm sure most of us are excited to talk about. The Nemesis system in effect is a mechanism within the game that allows you to actually establish Nemesis's Nemesi Nemesis, <laughs> and it actually does this very well. I actually find myself, every time I do a run of this game, coming up with a new nemesis that I hate more than life itself. They always have different names, different chants, different designs, armor sets, everything. And that's because all of the Uruks and the captains and the war chiefs are all procedurally generated. So you're never going to experience the same thing twice. This time around, it was a guy by the name of Ushgal, which 
is the bane of my existence. Now, I mentioned earlier that there's a, only a couple times in the game where it started to feel as though things were unfair and were punishing me for something beyond my control. And Ushkal is actually a perfect example. But to do this, let's actually rewind for a second so I can establish how these guys tend to be generated and when they work and when they don't. From what I can tell, they tend to establish a name that's built out of a catalog of different names that they have collected. They tend to have certain physical and visual attributes, voice characteristics, all of those are assigned. And then furthermore, they're assigned attributes such as a fear of caragors or a fear of fire or intimidation, or maybe they become enraged when they get close to death, making them much more dangerous, stealing out way more damage. They have tons of different attributes and characteristics that are randomly assigned to them, which makes them completely unique. And so this sounds good. We're making different characters that are all pretty much unique. What's the problem here? Well, the problem is that it's only when these systems combine in the perfect way that you can actually find somebody that is legitimately challenging. Somebody who is for instance, invulnerable to stealth, invulnerable to ranged, gets enraged easily, has certain abilities that make it so that they can't be parried or that they can't be dodged over, effectively making them the most difficult boss in the entire game. Far more difficult than the joke of an ending boss. Furthermore, later in the game, they tend to throw you into a crowd of 30 to 50 of these enemies at a time with a couple captains and maybe a war chief thrown in there as well. And this seems like it wouldn't be a big deal. However, what inevitably happens occasionally is that you're going to be taken down and killed randomly by some character who just happened to land the killing blow and they inevitably get promoted and they're established as a nemesis of yours, even though they frankly just got lucky. And those are not the moments when the game shines. The game shines when you run into somebody like Ushgal. Never before have I encountered a character in a game, even scripted characters, that filled me with such rage and such a heartfelt desire for revenge. Now to set this up, the first time that I met him, he was in a duel between Pushcrimp and himself and these are certain missions that you can go on where two of these warring chiefs or captains are going to fight each other to try to establish dominance and whoever wins is going to move up in overall strength potentially even get a promotion which let's be honest is a pretty cool way of establishing this real world uh, mechanism of growth and hierarchy and this battle for control that's constantly moving on i i think it's pretty cool and the fact that you can just encounter these things going on in the world I think is, is pretty awesome. And here, one of the cool things is that all of those abilities that apply to you also apply in these inter-Uruk and Orc fights that happen. So for instance here, Pushcrimp is a ranged build. He has a crossbow and his entire mechanism and way of fighting is based off of ranged attacks. Guess what? Ushkal's invulnerable to ranged. So basically Pushcrimp can't deal any damage at all and it went like you would expect. Now after this, I took him on and I tried to take him down, but because of his specific loadout of abilities, it basically made it impossible to take him down while he's in a crowd because he's invulnerable to all sorts of parries, to all sorts of damaging things such as caragors and different distractions you can throw at him, fire and explosions, stealth attacks, everything he's invulnerable to. 
And the thing is, if you take on one of these captains and you die, even just two or three times, they will be promoted and increase in strength so much that even if they just got lucky those two or three times, they will be at a level which makes them significantly challenging. And eventually I was able to get through and I was able to kill him and take him down. And honestly, it was pretty satisfying when I did. I felt as though I had overcome a massive challenge and it was one of those rushes of dopamine that you can only experience in a really satisfying game. But then this happened. There's huge rewards for the dark's head on the tibia blade. <laughs> we'll be rich and famous after this one. Let's get it done and get back to the grog. Drown the air with Uruk cries and the earth with Uruk blood. Ushkal came back like I, I had completely forgotten that this took place at the end of the game from my previous run throughs. I don't know how I forgot that this happened, but what the game does is it finds your most significant rival from the entire game, your nemesis for the last 15, 20, 30 hours. And it brings him back for you to fight him one last time, leveled up even more with a massive crowd of people. I actually was kind of glad to see him. I thought it was super cool, and uh, I, I I just think it's awesome. I, I thought this was such a nice touch. And this is what the game is all about. This is when the game excels, when you have these moments with your nemesis that are just so high stakes and you just hate them so much, that's when the system really, really works. It's just simple enough for you to engage with and understand what's going on. It doesn't overcomplicate it. It just puts a character in your path that consistently screws you over and that you want to take down more than anything in the world. And when you inevitably do and you overcome that challenge, it feels fantastic. However, your nemesis, if you play the second game, won't be gone forever. And that's all I'll say about that. If you want to know what happens, again, let me know if you want the critique down in the comment section below. But something cool happens if you play the first game and the second game on the same system. I'll leave it there. But lastly, let's discuss the world design, which I don't think actually gets a lot of credit when we talk about the game, looking back at it now, the nemesis system and combat takes all the precedent over it. But there's some pretty impressive world building that they've established, especially in the first area of the game. The second half of the game tends to feel much less focused on, which I think is pretty normal. Developers tend to front load a lot of their development time and a lot of the touch-ups and extra work that they put on uh, the game in terms of extra coats of paint and detail, attention to detail that is. But it really is impressive and considering that this was developed for the lowest common denominator, specifically the Xbox 360, it's pretty damn impressive what they were able to fit in the map, especially in that first area. There's all sorts of patrolling guards and enemies that you'll encounter. There's slave camps where you can free them, all of which dynamically generate and replace with different characters that can take you on, have their own unique abilities and attributes. It's pretty damn impressive and it really helps you get engrossed in the world. 
There's some of the telltale giveaways of a last generation game and of them trying to save on memory, such as big walls that block your line of sight so that their draw distance can be way shorter, things like that, which are to be expected. And I'm perfectly fine accepting as a result of the game being a little bit older, but all things considered, it's a pretty expansive and impressive game. And like I said earlier, on the Xbox One X, even today, Shadow of Mordor looks pretty fantastic. I, I honestly think many times in terms of the actual design of the world, it can look better than even Shadow of War does, which of course released going on three years after this game. And the beauty really does lie in the details here, which is why little touches that weren't required, such as when a new captain or warchief walks in, they actually chant their name. So Ushgal comes in and it's Ushgal, Ushgal. That's such a beautiful touch that they didn't need to put in there, but it makes everything feel much more real, much more dynamic, much more alive. And I, I think it's, uh, it's pretty impressive. Although I think my favorite chant was probably the one for Muzglob. And furthermore, the fact that all the war chiefs and captains fight with each other constantly, trying to gain more power and new abilities, it just gives everything a, a more lively feel, and it makes it feel as though you're actually exploring a world in which there's warring tribes, factions, captains, and war chiefs that all want more power, and they want to move up in the, the hierarchy. It feels alive. Again, I mostly think because it doesn't overcomplicate it, and the world that you're within is small enough and constrained enough that it doesn't feel as though it's just overwhelming. And that's one of my major criticisms for the sequel, that they just overcomplicated everything and expanded it too far in many ways and not enough in others. But again, that's a topic for another video. In the end, I think the main thing that I have to say about Shadow of Mordor, especially having gone back and played through it again for this video, is that it's got soul. It's got so much soul in a way that so few games have that it just feels good to play. It feels so satisfying and the world feels so real and alive and legitimate that it's hard to explain to somebody who hasn't experienced it, which is why even in 2019, I recommend to you, if you're interested at all in the Shadow of War or Shadow of Mordor games, go check them out, give them a shot. You can usually find them like used at a, a GameStop or something for five bucks, or you can go online and get it on sale for $2, I'm sure. It's got so much love, so much heart, so much soul in everything that it, it does. It's hard to quantify, truly. At the end of the day, Shadow of Mordor is what I consider to be a masterpiece, which of course makes the sequel all the more heartbreaking. But that's all I've got to say. Thank you guys so much for watching and hanging out with me during the course of this video. I honestly do appreciate it. I love you all to death. Like I said, if you are interested in a Khaleesi sticker, I will sign it. I'll ship them worldwide for five bucks, free shipping. Get them now before they're all gone. I only have a set number of them. So make sure to check them out, lukestevens.net if you're interested. And again, a special thank you to Ridge for sponsoring this video. They do some incredible stuff. They have fantastic products that I use every single day of my life. I cannot recommend them enough. But that's it from me and Khaleesi here. We love you all very, very much, and we'll see you in the next video. Make sure to leave your suggestion for the next critique down in the comment section below. I will be reading through them to see what has the most upvotes, and that'll determine what we do next. But with all of that said, thank you for watching, honestly and truly. I love you all more than you could possibly know, 
and I'll see you in the next video.